<laughs> All right. Those of you who are watching my channel, these two need no introduction. Um, and we've already started talking. So, I, so we got to record this. So yeah, <laughs> I found you guys because someone, someone messaged me and said, with your, with your, re basically your, your religion isn't going to work um, video, which I thought was outstanding. <laughs> and they said, oh, you'll be all over this. And so <laughs> I was. Um, so. I watched a lot of your videos on it and I started watching other videos that you've done because I really like it. Um, you are exactly what your culture needs right now as a warrior for your culture in that you recognize the problems and you are sober-mindedly attempting to fortify, um, you know, what is the systems that are in place right now against this great change that we're dealing with right now as a society. Um, which Even is though I'm losing. <laughs> well, <laughs> and probably uh, will I mean, lose completely. Everyone's little... losing right now. We're sort of like all in a room right now that poisonous gas has been filling into. <laughs> and 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 nobody isn't on the ground choking at the moment. The question is, is, you know, who actually realizes that the poisonous gas isn't good for them? Um, and 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 it's like, oh man, I feel so high right now. You know, there's like that. Actually, that's a better one. Like it's a it's a psychoactive gas, and it's one of those sci-fi's. And some people are like really getting into the psychoactive gas and stuff like that. And then there's the other people who are like stumbling around. They realize this is wrong. They realize they have to get out of here before uh, they die. Um, and, and the best anyone can hope for right now, you know, I, I look at a lot of these movements and they'll, they'll just say, why don't you go, you know, tradcast? They're always, you know, I'm like, did you know that the average fertility rate, average fertility rate for a European majority Catholic country right now is 1.3? Wow. Like these communities aren't just like doing poorly. They're, they're doing slightly better than the urban monoculture, but they are still doing catastrophically poorly which which I love what you're saying is it means that the the way out of this is either to find ways to move to more historic traditions and fortify them against threats that they that didn't exist alongside them when they used to work, you know, um, or uh, build new sort of uh, cultural infrastructure against this. Um, and, and, and then there's the intergenerational cultural fidelity problem, which is something you talked about. And yep. one of the things I really appreciated watching your analysis on us was how glib we are being about our own kids being okay and, and not losing them. <laughs> and, and I'll say, um, one of the things that sometimes people can miss and then other people see through this is, is to some people they're like, oh, that's a wonderful dance you're doing. Like, I love the way you're talking about this. And, and then you're like, no, I'm walking through a minefield. I'm not dancing. I have people on both sides of the spectrum where if I slip up or frame something in the wrong way, it's over. It's over for the entire movement. It's over for everything we're doing because we are in a culture war. Um, and we are, while we are strongly in the conservative camp, we're still trying to at least skirt the line enough that we don't get demonetized and deplatformed, um, which causes us to emphasize things in uh, what we're talking about that may be different from, you know, if you read under the line. So in stuff like our own confidence with our kids, a lot of that is to you know, just to be able to to say, look, we're not worried about people like us because, you know, the more you hand ring about that, the, the you're going to lose an audience. Um, and 
I, I, and I also will say at the same time, I do have a lot of faith right now that I will be able to make it work with my kids, but it is because we're approaching this with a very different strategy. And it's something that Simone and I have been thinking a lot about recently, and you might have interesting thoughts on, which is what specifically causes kids and people to fall out of a tradition? I mean, there's one thing, which is the constant media that they're bombarded with, which is basically conform, 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 right? Um, but then I, I don't know if that's the only thing that causes the bleed. And I think that if we can, at least like my wife and I, identify those areas, the things that would cause our kids to deconvert, um, we might be able to build infrastructure there. But then we're also doing something very odd, uh, which we haven't released this video yet, but you'll probably find it very interesting, is we're raising our kids with like a backup faith. And by that, <laughs> what I mean is we want to frame it for our kids that if they don't stay, right now, most conservative cultural traditions, they're like, if you don't stay in our faith, the urban monoculture is the alternative, right? Like that is the default alternative that everyone is raising their kids with. It's and implied. Our, I, I think people just haven't thought through it. I think if they thought through it, they would probably choose a backup faith. Yeah, so that's another thing that we're working on is 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 backup faith, um, which likely for us is gonna be Jewish. Um, uh, and we're working to send them to like Jewish summer camps and stuff like that. So they have some aspect of that identity there, but it also allows us to provide a more clear contrast because one of the things that, that we mentioned and you picked up on like immediately what we were saying when we were saying this is that countries that have high fertility rates, despite prosperity and, and high educational attainment, typically have now, we, obviously, when we're selling this to progressives, we say they have diversity. Right. Um, uh, and, and they're like, oh, they don't want to get. But what they really have is cultural conflict. Um, uh, they have a, a sense of this is who we are, this is who they are, therefore what we are is unique and different and meaningful. Um, and when you lack that, and I actually think that this is why these, these Catholic countries have such low fertility rates, um, is, is in part because of that. Because when they have the majority population in their country, then there isn't this existential threat. Uh, there was a really interesting study that we promoted on our channel recently done by Arya Babu that looked at, um, in Europe, rates of how conservatively cultures related to child rearing, um, i.e. Uh, it asked questions like, do you think that like being a mother is a moral duty? Do you think it's it's immoral to be a mother and have a secondary job? Do you think like, it went through a number of questions around motherhood. And what it found very interesting is, is the more conservative a country was on average, the lower its fertility rate was when you hold other variables constant. But uh, within countries, the more conservative a tradition was, the higher its fertility rate was. Uh, so what you're looking at here you're is this at. cultural conflict. Yeah. Anyway, we, we can get to talking. I've just been rambling here. Well, I, I don't know if we should. I'll, I'll say one thing about what you just said, because here's all my kids. My wife and I had five kids, have five kids. Um, all of those are between us. My wife and I have been married 35 years. Uh, my wife and I often see the world quite differently, which is an interesting thing. Um, all of my kids have sort of their own trajectories, but here's when you're looking, but I, you know, I remember looking at my kids when they were, you know, we'd homeschooled the kids, not all the way through for all of them, but, um, you know, a fair amount. Your kids are, your kids are likely as smart or smarter than the two of you. 
And so keep that in mind. <laughs> you know, the ways the ways that your your parents were probably quite smart too. And they've tried to colonize you and keep you hemmed and uh, y'all broke out. Um, but it's it's weird what kids do with what you give them. Because of course, they're always interacting with the world that is beyond you because that's sort of, you know, this differentiation, this developmental process that happens, they will push back against you. And so it's a really, it's a, it's a really interesting dance. And I think, I think the idea of control should simply be abandoned because um, it usually goes poorly. <laughs> because well, it is we, we actually see that as a feature, not a bug. Um, and, and we're definitely of the mindset that if we're wrong, we want our kids to be right. Yes. And yes. that that culture is a sales pitch that lasts for as long as your kids are under your care. You have roughly 18 years to show them what you believe and how you live. And if that's convincing to them, they'll run with it. And if it's not, I mean, isn't it better that they do something different now? I mean, we would argue that unfortunately the way it works now is the urban monoculture, as Malcolm puts it, is sort of the default that people turn to. And it's kind of like meth or an addictive drug. Like it's not actually a good solution and it's not actually better. It's just kind of easier and more virulent. Yep, yep. Um, so And they gain it, status it through it and opportunities, yeah, which are, are exactly. huge draws when kids are in their 20s. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, I mean, these days it feels like it's a requirement. You know, we have yep. friends who are, are at Harvard now and like, they feel like they can't, <laughs> you can't yeah, express they're like, I'm constantly views. on the verge of being kicked out just by speaking sanity. And, and I have yeah. to hide who I am and what I believe. And uh, two things I wanted to point out on this point. One, I was just reminded one misconception you have about us is I've never been married to anyone else. Um, <laughs> Simone is definitely my first wife and, and okay, good. Cause that was, cause you said what I thought, so anyway, no, no, thank I you refer for to her that. as my wife half the time, and and I think that that implied to you that if I'm if I sometimes I'm saying Simone and I'm sometimes saying my wife, I might be talking about two Even people. Even if I'm sitting right here and it's just a conversation between the two of us, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like oh, my wife says this. So, so this is one thing, but another you all, thing. You also both look young, and I appreciate that in our culture. <laughs> that's, but I, I also have a sense that you're probably not. You're not in your twenties anymore. You're in your thirties. You don't have to tell me. Oh, no, he's 30s. he's thirty seven. I'm thirty six. Oh, okay. In so, yeah. So you two are, so you two have seen a bit of the world. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> we're we, so we're very old. Oh gosh, yes. You're, my you're... my real age though, my I feel like everyone has a real age. My real age is sixty two. Malcolm's real age is about eleven. Um, and, and I don't mean that in terms of wisdom. I mean that in terms of like intellectual veracity and energy. Um, so <laughs> you know. Such a moderating force on my over vivaciousness. But, but but the other thing I wanted to touch on here that I think is really interesting in how we have tried to construct an intergenerational cultural tradition, which can both evolve, but also keep kids within it, is we're trying to tap something very similar to what you see tapped within capitalism, where human hmm. greed is used to motivate intergenerational improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, uh, it, it, for us, what we're trying to do is something that has always been a feature of, uh, especially my, my family, is uh, family competition. And so we try to encourage our kids to do better than us, not to do exactly what we did, but to iterate on it, but to maintain the same goals, i.e. high fertility, intergenerational fidelity, and success of their kids, like mental health of their kids and, and, and efficacy of their kids. 
Um, and they get to uh, judge uh, within the index, which is the central family sort of ledger and accounting system. Um, uh, if they, not they, their kids actually get to judge them, whether they did a better job than their parents. Um, and then their own kids get to choose which system to use. So it's sort of the, the vanity of intergenerational improvement is what drives the intergenerational cohesion in this system. And it makes sense within our larger religious structure, because one of the things you've asked in some of the stuff you've seen on us is like, what is the theological endpoint that we are aiming for. Um, and the theological endpoint we are aiming for is intergenerational improvement, where intergenerational improvement is a mandate for full revelation, um, which is a little different than a lot of other Christian groups, um, which is to say that uh, we believe that God cannot fully reveal himself to us as we are today, and we must continue to improve to become something that can understand God. And that is a religious duty, you know, as, as we say, as Winwood Reed said, um, a, a man may follow his conscience, but if that conscience is untrained, then he follows his conscience into sin. And therefore the honing of one's mind is a religious duty. However, that honing is an intergenerational religious duty because as much as I try to do it within a generation, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I do not think humans have that much capacity to improve after like the age of 25. So I think that's a, I think that's a good description of something that's implicit in progressive revelation, which is a deeply Christian idea that at, at each stage there can be, you know, there can be. There are, these are always offset by other balancing things. John Verveke, I don't know if you know anything. He talks about opponent processing in terms of cognitive science. I mean, there's always sort of a back and forth with these things. Now, what what I wanted to, I mean, I it's very clear that, and and I'd, I'd love to have more conversations with you guys, but for my first conversation yeah. with people, what I usually get into is their stories. Because part of the problem with YouTube is that what people forefront are their ideas because everybody's on these little mission with their ideas and they're trying to colonize the world. But we already have these defenses against the ideas. And so mm -hmm. everything is just like this shallow and things just bounce off. And so part of the reason I, I spend a fair amount of time um, when I first talk to people getting into their stories is because in my experience, hearing at least some of someone's story at least fleshes them out, makes them a little less two-dimensional. And <laughs> then the ideas can have some context and actually the ideas can 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 germinate and grow a little bit more, um, for better or for worse, depending. But that's so that's that's why I do um if you if there's a lot of different aspects to my channels, I have what I call Rando's conversations, because early on I had a lot of people wanting to talk to me, and I had way more people wanting to talk to me than I could talk to. So then with permission, I started sharing people's stories on the channel and that then took on a life of its own. And so what's grown is sort of a community of people who sort of know each other now through YouTube. And um, and that's been, I think, one of the more helpful and fulfilling aspects of that. But that's all dependent on getting a sense of story. And from a little bit of the, the work I've done already, both of you have been quite online people. Um, I mean... Yeah, I mean, Simone, your the channel goes a ways back with you, and I'm glad you never <laughs> took that stuff down because I don't take anything off my channel either. Because if somebody actually wants to understand, it's helpful to give them at least some primary material, whether they dig through it. So, 
I, I'd like to go into both of your stories because to me, that's that's kind of, I will understand your ideas better if I have an understanding of where you're coming from. So absolutely. And I, I can already go into one uh, uh, mystery for you because you did an episode on this mystery, which is why does our channel have so few subscribers yeah. when we have been on so many other big channels? And the answer is, is it's sort of a hidden answer. So if you look at when we were on Chris Williamson, if you look at when we did Piers Morgan, uh, that was all early this year. Um, this channel that we have that's now called Basecamp, it hadn't been updated in like seven years. It was like her high school college channel. So nobody went to it, nobody subscribed to it. We only started doing like our modern mission was in the channel. Um, I'd say like four or five months ago. Um, okay. And it was same with Twitter. Like we now have a Twitter account that is associated with both of us, but it used to just be her account. And you would tweet maybe once every three, four months. So the, the real answer is, is we made a mistake. When we first really blew up in the media, we didn't have anywhere to send people. Um, and so we're just growing within the algorithm right now yeah. and not through referrals. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Well, I've, uh, it's already clear, Malcolm. I knew this before we got. You're a talker, and so I wanna, I wanna, I wanna start with Simone. Okay, <laughs> um, Simone, tell me, tell me about the house you grew up in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, nervous laughter. Yeah, I, I actually, I grew. I had a perfect and idyllic childhood, which is really in stark contrast to Malcolm's, which was. Mm. He doesn't complain about it, but it was uh, surprisingly difficult. Like he and I were just having this conversation this morning, actually, because I have a fever. I feel really bad right now. And and I was like, well, what did your mom do for you when you were sick? You know, because I was talking about like, oh, my mom, you know, like would make chicken noodle soup and she'd sit me on the couch and she'd make chamomile tea. Um, and he's like, oh, man, I just remember like this one time where I was like, you know, deeply sick and my family just made me go on a boat with them. And like, I don't know, it's like it, everything was tough for him. So like I had this the the complete opposite of his childhood where you know Malcolm you've been through everything you like act like it's nothing oh uh, it's so funny like I can't I can't even open doors I'm so neurotic and he like you know has has been through everything but um so yeah I, I grew up in the same house um throughout my entire childhood in Alameda mm -hmm. California which is this island of fairies right away from San Francisco in the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, I was able to always walk to everything, preschool, yeah. elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, I was allowed to be very, very independent as a kid. I would, you know, walk home, hang out by myself after school because both my parents worked. Um, and I loved that. I loved being alone and independent. My parents supported absolutely everything that I ever did. How many siblings? Um, I have a half brother and sister, but they're okay. both about ten years older than me, so I didn't okay. really grow up. But so you were you were a cherished jewel for for your parents. Yeah, but I was. You're, you're leaving out part of the story here that they're from a second open marriage, and her parents were doing all that. Yeah. Stuff. So my oh. my mother originally babysat for the two children of my my father's first marriage, but it was a polyamorous Bay Area marriage, um, and then my mom <laughs> sort of reached this point at which she was like no, I, I can't be in a polyamorous relationship anymore. I want to be monogamous. And so my parents um, uh, ended up getting married. My dad got divorced after his first marriage. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, it was it was a very contentious situation. And actually they, probably because it was a, a fairly unpopular thing, 
um, disappeared to uh, Japan at the, at the time. And then uh, th their plan was to go to China. So my dad was studying Aikido under this grandmaster when my parents accidentally got pregnant. Um, I mean, they wanted to have a kid. They thought they couldn't have a kid. So they were really happy to have me. Um, but uh, that was, uh, yeah. And I was definitely, I was raised in an extremely progressive environment. Uh, my idea of a wedding was people um, putting on masks in the woods and, and dancing around. I, I was actually fairly stunned the first time I attended a church wedding with a normal reception. I thought it was really cool. <laughs> uh, not that masks aren't cool, but like, I don't know, it just seemed kind of romantic and like the thing of fairy tales. Um, and uh, I, I also just assumed, you know, all sorts of crazy things um, based on like the environment that I grew up in. But yeah, it was also a very permissive environment, meaning that I was the black sheep of the family by being very conservative, by saying, I'm going to stay in and do my homework and I'm not going to go out and experiment. And I'm was going to- Was that temperamental to... for you? Or, I mean, when you say conservative, were you just have a conservative temperament or- Yeah, con like conservative temperament, conservative behavior. Okay. Um, where I, I didn't <laughs> do anything- crazy rebellious um i i just you know did did my homework and was a goody two shoes which which disappointed my parents immensely i, I mean, remember they, them they being like "Smo, you, you... it's okay to get a c or you know like a b it's it's okay um and i'm like no it's not okay stop and i was always the one my parents my parents like I never really got in trouble, but I, on multiple occasions, my parents would be like, you're mean. Like, you know, I would criticize them. I'd be like, you're making bad life choices. Like, you know, you should be doing this or that. And yeah, it was kind of the killjoy of the family. So, so your so. rebellion went in the opposite direction. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But no, my, but my, my childhood was idyllic and perfect and, and easy and fun and wonderful. So. Well, I know Alameda, <laughs> it's an interesting place. We have a Christian from church in Alameda that I've, um, helped out a number of times so oh no way cool. yeah 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 it's an it's a it's a very interesting community it's the brigadoon um, of the bay area uh, yeah, no one really yeah. realizes it's there until they've been so so your parents so your parents were permissive progressive liberal open free spirits you're temperamentally conservative did you go to public school yes yeah okay yeah and I'm then very college what school. was what was the transition like into college Oh, I wanted to go as far away from California as I possibly could. So I went to um, the George Washington University in DC and then um, again, rebelled against my parents by immediately getting multiple jobs because um, they they were like, no, just do college, have fun, you know, do the experience. And I'm like, no, I'm going to work. Um, we and I, we I, have the urban well, monoculture we are throwing at you. Why are you <laughs> taking our religion? I know. So why? And, why? And, and Simone, as a bit of color, if you're, their parents aren't full urban monoculture types. They are more what I would call um, rural uh, or woodland hippies. You know, they're much more like the camping, like the type you would see in like- Northern oh, California is full of this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like the the secessionist Northern Californian, uh, you know, they she still grew up with guns. She still grew up with all of that. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, OK, so tell tell me about. OK, so college, what did you study in college? Um, well, you know, I originally this was where I was like still very progressive. I created a special major um, for myself, environmental business, because I thought the the greatest aspect like or impact I could have on the world was by saving the environment. But that you can't really do that through policy. That's 
dumb, you know, business is the thing that makes a big difference in the world. So I'm going to study both the, the environmental sciences is to understand sort of the major pressure points as much as I can and business. Um, and then the more I learned about both, the more I learned that, that most approaches being taken to climate change and, um, the environment in general are completely dumb and inane and if anything, counter counterproductive. And I just dropped it super fast and then just went through all of my dream jobs to get all the irresponsible stuff out of the way while I was still in college. So I worked for a medical device company, a fashion magazine, a chocolate factory, a cupcake shop. Wow. Uh, it was really great. Um, so, so religion and spirituality, what were those like for you? My parents called themselves born again Buddhists. Um, and okay. as soon yeah. as I went to a Mormon preschool, just because it was the best one um, on the island, it was, I loved it. It was called Class A Tiny World. I love Mormons so much. All of my friends in college were Mormons. I just, oh, it's the best. The LDS church, man. Um, and so as soon as I started asking my parents about Jesus, they freaked out and sent me to Dharma school um, just to make sure, you know, like head that off right away. Anything um, but Christian. Anything any, but Christian. Anything. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was an experience. It was, it was really much more of a Japanese community center than anything else. Um, which was honestly pretty great. And like, I don't know, like they said some stuff in Dharma school that just really got me. They were like, well, you know, the Buddha, like he's not really real. Like, you know, he's not, you know, he's, he's like a concept. And I'm like, are you guys allowed to say that? Are you, I, I thought this is like the kind of thing we don't say. Um, so it was a really interesting experience. And then I, I traveled a lot in Japan when I was a kid, because we, we still had friends there from when my parents had lived there. Um, and I loved Shinto shrine. So it was basically like this mixture of like Shinto and like nothing. Um, and it was, you know, um, basically I was, I was an atheist my entire life. Um, so yeah, different, <laughs> different from, I don't know, like not dissimilar from you, Malcolm. Um, you were more church yeah. of the subgenius if you had any church as a teen. Yeah. We will get to you, Malcolm. We will get to you. <laughs> um, so after after college, settle into a career, or did you wander? Or no, I settled into career. Um, so I I got a job at a startup. Um, it was great. I had life insurance. I had my like savings set up. I, like my entire life was in order, and my my plan was to live alone forever. Um, and and uh, be a single career woman. Eventually, start my own business. You know, just do the whole. And that was like very much the urban monoculture thing, right? Yeah. Like to be become a single career woman and live alone forever and do the thing. Um, and I, I decided that as part of that, I needed to have like a rom-com year essentially. So in 2012, when I turned, uh, 24 years old, um, at that point I'm autistic. So like, I never really worked out how to date when I was in high school. Um, I, I had only kissed one person before I was a virgin. I was like, well then, okay. So my resolution this year is I'm going to fall in love and have my heart broken, so that I can say I've done it. You know, I've, I've, I've tried romance. It's dumb. It's stupid. Breakups are not everything they say they are. I just wanted to be able to like dispel everything and not have people look down upon me for having never tried it or like, oh, you're incapable of love. You just don't understand. I'll be like, no, I did it. It's dumb. Um, so I did it. I, I created first in my startup because there was no HR department, um, a competitive dating ring where, you know, we got points for like, you know, getting a, getting someone to go on a date with you, like number of outreaches, like it was, it was on the whiteboard. I can't believe. What, what year was this? Was this before? This was the in dating? 2012. 
2012. So this was yeah. back when online dating was still on websites. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, apps. back when it was like cool. It was like before actually really swipe. good. Yeah, yeah. Pre-swipe. I think that's the thing. Pre-swipe dating was a golden age. Um, and so I created a keyword stuffed OkCupid profile. I knew exactly like my demographic, which was internet nerd. Because as you've pointed out, we are very online people. Um, so I like had it completely stuffed with memes and online references. I was posing in film grade stormtrooper armor in my photos. Um, I was like 100% there. And I, I had like, you know, also I had a scoring system, um, for determining if someone was worth a second date. It's, it's a, it's actually a really good scoring system. So I'm going to tell you what it is. It's 50 points total, um, five questions, each is 10 points. So the first first question is how excited were you to see them? You know, like, oh my God, like, get me out of this room or like, right. oh, this is going to be good. Um, how much did you enjoy the conversation? How much did you enjoy any physical contact? Doesn't have to be crazy intimate. Could be just, you know, a handshake. Right. Right. Um, how much do you want to see them again? Yeah. And how much do you think they want to see you again? Um, and my average score of all the dates that I went on was 16. <laughs> it's not great. Um, you know, you need someone to score probably at least above 36 for them to justify a second date. And Malcolm, yeah. though, he scored a 42. Oh, um, and the only reason he worked. didn't get a 50 was no. I assumed he was way too cool for like, there's no way he'd want to see me again. So that was a two out of 10. Um, but like, I, it just, it blew my mind. Um, both, both he and I were really on like very regimented dating schemes when we met um both of us actually i think when on our first date we were each on the second date of the day it was a saturday so we were able to double up like both of us were insane about it um and he sits across from me at dinner and right away is like well i'm not looking to date right now i'm looking to find a wife and i expect to find her this fall at stanford where there's a large pool of pre-vetted candidates and i'm like whoa i mean Okay. And then he like proceeds to lay out his entire life, like philosophy and theory, which is actually quite unchanged from what it's, it is now. It's, it's very consistent. He, he actually thought through this and I'm like, wait, okay. So this guy has thought through his life philosophy. He's thought through his, his values. He's honest with me, which nobody is ever um you know no one says what they actually want no one says what they intend you know like what they expect from you or what they you know what they're looking to do and it, oh my gosh it was so refreshing and i was just like i was immediately enthralled i was immediately in love with him like it was and, and i thought it was perfect right because he he didn't think i was interesting he wanted to meet his wife at Stanford. I was, I had gone to GW in DC. I was embarrassing. I had, you know, I was neither an heiress nor, you know, a particularly, you know, accomplished young woman. I was just some manic pixie dream girl, hippie from the Bay area. I mean, I, I used to wear the weirdest, I mean, I'm still wearing weird outfits now, but like I would wear like, you know, hard jugu pink jumpsuits and dirndls and you know vintage rayon taffeta dresses with petticoats and stuff i mean no one would take me seriously um but so you know obviously malcolm was not going to take me seriously but i'm like oh i can fall in love with him and he can break my heart and we can all do this before he starts at stanford and so we went on a couple more dates um, and then i'm like hey listen i will have sex with you if you promised to break up with me on July 31st. Uh, and he's like, mm, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so, to and he okay. did, by the way, 
he did break up with me very honorably. Um, um, but he, he completely changed my life before that happened. Um, he, you know, because he was very honest with me up from the beginning, yeah. like, here's what, you know, my life is about here, are my values here, are my goals. Then, you know, we start dating and he's like, okay, what are your values? What are your goals? How are you going to achieve them? And we're like, well, you know, I want to, you know, eventually start my own business. And he's like, oh, you think you're going to start your own business dressed like that? And I mean, like, Ah, to be fair, no one was going to take me serious. <laughs> no one was going to take me serious. So he's like, all right, let's like, you know, let's, let's think really seriously about, you know, the kind of person that you need to present as to achieve your goals as a person. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> and first Malcolm, I'm never going to let you get out of this. It's like, you were, you were like, let's go for the 1980s. You were like shoulder pads, like, you know, business suits. The pa I'm like, <laughs> no. But we, you know, he he is actually a very good stylist. Um, no, what what that you ended up exception. doing was creating a list. You went to LinkedIn and you took the 50 women who uh, were the most powerful women in the world who had achieved it, not through marriage and not through their bodies, mm -hmm. um, i.e. not through like movies Celebrity. or something. Yeah. And then you did a, a a gradient of all the ways that they dressed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then, and then we, we like built a new wardrobe based on that. Basically like by, by the end of the, our dating period, our, when we broke up, um, I got a promotion at work. I got invited to speak at like important conferences. It was like, suddenly people took me seriously. People who had like not seen me since I started dating Malcolm and then heard of everything that I achieved were like, no, you didn't. Um, because it's just like the person that I presented as before I met Malcolm would never have been allowed. Like those doors would not have opened for her. And I, it's like really through Malcolm that I learned that people totally do judge you by who you are on the outside. Oh, and like, we've had multiple periods in our relationship where I'm like, no, people are going to see me who, I, you know, for who I am based on my merits and skills, <laughs> which is the most ridiculous idea ever. But I didn't want to believe that. Um, I know it's so sad. Bad. Um. <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna okay now now we're gonna have to go back because we got to get this story from Malcolm's perspective. Yes. But before that, we have to know who Malcolm is. So, all right, Malcolm, tell me about the home you grew up in. Oh, um, it was a really large. Well, so there's a few homes that I grew up in. Um, you know, my house, my family had an island in the Bahamas. We spent a year living in a villa in Italy. We had a, they had a really large um, mansion in the center of Highland Park in, in Dallas. Um, and when I say large, I mean, it had uh, hallways in it um, behind the, the walls so that you wouldn't see the servants. Um, now, my family didn't use servants. They were sort of like living in the, um, uh, uh, like a hermit crab. They had actually gotten that house <laughs> by talking some other family into giving them that house. My dad was always very good at this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, you know, somebody will brag to him like, "Oh, I've got this house in in Vale that I hardly ever use," and he's like, "Oh, well, did my family go stay there for a while?" You know, he he was always very good at at at, at um playing the system, but he was also enormously successful. You know, he put together stuff like like stuff people might have heard of. Like he's one of the early board members during the transition period to being really big, like the Santa Fe Institute, stuff like that. A uh, really big sort of intellectual with this stuff. Um, and uh, I I was born into that family. Um, How many siblings? What? what uh, siblings? I have one full brother and then one uh, half sister. Okay. Um, and my brother and I are very close. You know, he also works with his wife. They live right next to us. We do stuff with him all the time. He's oh, a great guy. Wonderful. 
Um, so we we are very, very culturally aligned, my, my brother and I. Um, but uh, his marriage to my mom didn't last that long. Mm. Um, and this was like wife number five for him or something. Oh. So we were never really fully accepted into the family, my brother and I, um, in the same way that like the other kids were. Because, you know, obviously in a family like this, you know, there's always like, uh, oh, side yeah. eyes about inheritance and stuff like that and if you you are from one of the wives who was never liked by the family and a short-term wife anyway uh you know after that happened uh there was a lot of reason for me to uh disappear um and that ended up co coincidentally happening now, i don't i don't know the full story of what happened um it might have been a cash for kids situation it might have been an actual thing but anyway i'm like 11 or 13 and i am sent um to uh uh prison basically so so it was a prison alternative so i was sentenced by the court like we don't know exactly what it was i do know there was a court sentencing involved um to go to this prison alternative for young kids very similar to holds if anyone has read that book or seen the movie uh it's actually a very very good representation um basically what it is it used to be called the troubled teen industry um the the side that i went in because it was the government side was basically an unregulated private prison industry for children um and uh so i lived in that for a while um, and I, at that point, it was made pretty clear for me. I wasn't welcome back with my family, but um, I was very fortunate that my ancestors had set up a, an educational trust for me that I was able to use to pay for boarding school and stuff like that, which allowed, um, you know, it, 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 me to to work my way back from yeah. that environment into sort of mainstream society until I ended up getting into St. Andrews for uh, undergrad um, in the field of neuroscience um, and then from there, you know, right after that is around when I met Simone. In terms of my family's religious traditions, uh, historically very uh, Calvinist, you know, very big supporters of the um, primitive Baptist movement and stuff like oh, that. And they, yeah. um, but they, they they did get a little bit seduced, some of them, by the uh, more flashy Baptists. I mean, I, I know they put a ton of money into these big fancy churches that I find quite obscene. The um, more flashy Baptists. <laughs> um well, you should see these churches. I don't like them. Um, well, so what, what did your grandfather? World. Your grandfather wrote something to you in like some letter that you received later. Oh, like, yeah, 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 that I needed to uphold the Calvinist traditions of the family, and that I, I well, specifically the Calvinist work ethic is what he said, um, oh. and that uh, uh, and and that sort of framing of the family tradition, and and um, you know, they'd done a lot of stuff. So they were uh, like my family was basically part of like a weird separatist cult in Texas, um, uh, where they. Uh, you know, I, I often mean, people know the free state of Jones. This was a, hmm. uh, you know, a anti-slavery breakoff state in the South. Uh, out of the 50 founding members, 15 were within one deviation of a direct descendant of me. Um, so this was a community that was very separated from the rest of society, had their very different ideas about what's moral and what's immoral. Uh, if people don't know them, basically I'm a descendant of like the John Brown iteration of, of the tradition, which is very <laughs> yeah. different than what's practiced today. Um, so uh, the, the family had their sort of own culture around all this and, and, and intergenerationally. And my granddad was a congressman, for example, um, you know, they, they had built themselves up into quite successful like local public entities. Um, and, uh, but I was sort of cast out from that. And even before that, I was not within the religious traditions. Neither was my dad. I mean, my dad 
was very similar to her dad. I think he'd call himself some form of like Eastern spiritualist or something. Um, you know, it's something that was very common for that generation. Uh, I, I, I think it's just, uh, was their generation of the default urban monoculture answer that made them feel sophisticated and, and, and educated. Um, and so I, uh, the type of person who would say, well, you know, organized religion, I don't like that, but I am spiritual. And I, I say the, the funny thing is, is that our generation's version of that is, oh, well, spirituality. Well, that's all woo, but organized religion seems to have a point. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. But I uh, really liked engaging with atheism as a concept back then. I really liked engaging with all the spiritual debates and all the religious debates. And I really liked studying this stuff. I really loved studying early Christianity uh, Jewish history. Um, and, uh, so, but, but I had never built any antagonism towards my family history, right. Or, or my parents or anything like that, uh, going through all that, I always really felt, um, like they, they just were who they were. Um, and that I was proud of what each of them had done was in their lives for society. And I wanted to continue, uh, this tradition in whatever way I could. Um, and so I then, um, uh, but but I was never told, like, we want you to be this or we want you to be that. Like, I know my grandparents wanted me to go to communion, but it was like weak, watered-down Episcopal stuff because that's what my mom had put me into. Uh, that's what I've been baptized in, specifically. And that's why I went to a school where we go to church every week. Um, uh, well, I, and, I feel like you were, you were Dallas society baptized, you know, like yeah, it, was, it was like it was social it was like the most, She said it was the most acceptable if I wanted to run for president one day. Um, like, and it was like and, the specific church in Highland Park that like all the, you know, that the town got baptized at. You know, it was not like, this is not based on faith. This was based on Well, I think it was Methodist signal. actually is where I was baptized. And then Episcopal was the school I went to. But anyway, all, yeah. all That's the ladder. Yeah. Very unlike, what's the ladder? But you climb up from Methodist to Episcopal. That's a certain kind of ladder. Yeah. yeah. So, so I um, it was very uh, unengaged. I, I mean, I I knew all the teachings, but I was very unengaged by it. Um, and uh, and I really liked this sort of dissident stuff anyway. Like that was all fun to engage with the, the rebellion for the sake of of rebellion. But also, I just wasn't really logically convinced by any of it. I really wanted to. Like, I I wrote my first book on religion when I was in high school, uh, where I was, like, analyzing all of the different traditions and being like, which one is the most compelling to me? Um, and I then, uh, so I hadn't really thought about that when I was meeting Simone. You know, I was, it was more of, like, a secular world framework. At that time, I was trying to find a wife. I knew I wanted to find a wife. I was Why really did you want a wife? To this. What? Why did you want a wife? Uh, family culture, I guess. My mom had always told me that the single most important decision you ever make is who you marry, so don't fuck it up. Um, and she'd always emphasize this. Whenever I'd say something was important, like where I get into college is really important, she'd be like, it's trivial compared to who you marry. Don't mess that up. And she kept, you know, uh, uh, reflecting that back to me. And um, and it was so, so it was one thing I thought about, but then I also really, um, you know, I remember when I first talked to Simone, I was looking for a first wife at the time because I had normalized this idea that you get divorced, but at least you want to get married. You want to have kids. You want to like, that was never in question for me. Right. Okay. So you um, wanted a starter wife and, you know, work out and then get to the, <laughs> then finally do it right the second time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait, which is really not that uncommon. 
Yeah, well, that's the way the previous generation did things, you know? <laughs> um, and so I was out there um, really, really hard trying to vet for a wife. And so I was doing about five dates a week. Um, I tried to do that for a period of like two to three years, really starting about middle of college. Before that, I was just like a complete playboy. I just did like total the sexual engagement with the world stuff. Um, and then after that, I was like, oh, this is boring at this point. It's too easy. Let's go the wife route, full in on finding a good wife. Um, and everything Simone says is accurate about our first date. Uh, what she is underestimating is when I started well, dating talk her. Talk about your project. I mean, she had, she obviously, and this tells, says a ton about your personality. <laughs> she obviously laid this sucker out and she was, you know, and, and I don't know, um, I don't know, Simone, if you've read Mary Harrington's piece on Taylor Swift. No. You should, no. because it, it pertains directly to your story about looking nice. for that heartbreak. She's basically saying Taylor Swift is setting up a generation kind of to be what you did. So anyway, yeah. so what was your project? I mean, five dates a week where you just sort of... I needed a wife. this thing or did you have no 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 I, I was doing high throughput screening you know similar to they do in biology when they're looking for an antigen to bind to something rare and you see these in labs where it's like a machine like jink 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 into like the thousands of test tubes they're doing that to try to find one perfect binding site and that's what I was doing I was out there looking for this one perfect binding site and I met Simone and I did not think I mean I said she was an okay like she was great she was a good conversationalist she was nice <laughs> but what really stood out to me was two things. Early in our relationship, we started talking about like, what are your goals? She's like, here are my goals. And I was like, okay, here's how you can achieve your goals. And then she actually started making those changes in her life. And not only did she make those changes in her life, she actually began to achieve her goals. You know, she began, she, when I met her, she was a social media manager at that company, basically their Facebook manager. She worked her way up to director of marketing. It wasn't like a promotion. It was like a ginormous promotion. This was the 45th highest trafficked website in the U.S. at the time. You know, she... Uh, was in, invited to speak at South by Southwest. She was like everything she put her mind to, she achieved. And at the time, one of the qualifications in a wife I really wanted was that she came with a lot of money attached to her, either, you know, huge upwards trajectory or she was from a wealthy family because my mom always told me and she's really right. The easiest way to get rich is to marry rich. A yeah. um, lot less work than any of the other pathways and it yep. makes life a lot easy. Don't believe people when they tell you it doesn't. No, um, the, the people for centuries have been, everybody's known this for the history <laughs> of the world until a whole group yeah. of people were sort of deprogrammed. And I have been sort of like cut off from my larger family. So I had no money coming from that. That was never going to happen. Um, so I knew I had to get out there. I, I had, I had the, the, the culture. I knew how to look, I knew how to get into the parties, but I, I had nothing, you know, other than that. Um, and so uh, it was her. I was like, no, 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 no. I am looking at her trajectory. The moment her and I met, it was like synergy, explosion, huge career success. She actually values my opinion. She's actually out there trying to make something specific of herself. This is something I really respect because within my family and I was always taught to respect this is efficacy. Like somebody who is industrious and has efficacy and has gratitude for the things in their life, whatever they are, however hard things get, Simone had all of that. I, I, you know, I never heard an ungrateful word about her life or what she was experiencing. Um, and, and I, and, and she's just such a hard worker and just so industrious and just so effective. And so I was like, yeah, this is who I want to marry. And so I told her, I was like, like look, if we're going to get back together after we did this breakup thing. I was like, look, I'm, yeah, I'm really sorry, breakup. Well, I mean, I'm passing up this period where, uh, there's a great number of people I could be dating right now. 
Um, so like, like that are in this vetted situation, I'm not going to have a better marriage pool than Stanford. Um, so if I'm getting back together with you, you know, this is a test for marriage and I don't want it to last, you know, longer than six months. So we had decided really early that we were going to get married. And then, um, as soon as we decided we were going to get married, we delayed the, uh, marriage because my brother and his wife had met first day of, uh, college. And I knew that she had always told him that Malcolm better not get married before us. So uh, we decided to get married the day after them. And we, we ended up planning a joint wedding where uh, they were both in Scotland and they got married one day and then we got married literally the next day to make it easier for all the guests to go out and do it. But in two very different environments, two very different weddings. It's a great family vacation. Yeah, great family vacation. Um, And so uh, we did all that. Uh, and then I had to go out and, you know, make some money. And I had actually gotten a job at Google, but they hadn't given me a position. It was like a weird thing that used to be able to happen at Google. And so I'd been waiting for six months for them to employ me because we had done a startup together. We went through 500 startups. We did all that. Um, and uh, then that hadn't worked out. And I had uh, told her, I was like, look, I, I, I can marry a girl from GW. She graduated first in her class, but still, I was like, this is a little gross to me. Um, so I need you to get like legit experience. And so uh, she, she then went in Cambridge for her graduate degree, but I needed to pay for this, you know? Um, I didn't, I didn't have no money, you know, because I'd spend it all on the startup. Um, so, uh, I then got this job in Korea as a venture capitalist, uh, as a director of strategy at a firm out there, because, you know, every summer vacation, I think uh, summer, spring vacation, other people in college and stuff like that. They would go on uh, vacations with all the other kids in college and everything. I sent emails to all of the like CEOs that had come to speak at our school or I had met on any of these trips and was like, hey, do you have an, I had sent an email to one of the people in Korea whose startup had come to the US to, to talk. And they're like, yeah, sure, come come work for us for the spring break. And I did such a good job at the company that the VC that had invested in them then said, hey, we want you to come on as our director of strategy. So I then went out for that um, and that is when I really started focusing on fertility rates because it was so clear to me, it was this catastrophic issue in Korea yeah. for people who aren't aware of Korea's current fertility rate for every hundred Koreans, there's going to be six great grandchildren. Like yeah. they don't have an economy, you know? Yeah. So I started caring about that there. Um, you know, long story short, Simone and I then ended up coming back together, starting a company to get, starting a, a fund together because we'd always wanted to work together. Um, and we use that to uh, buy a number of travel agencies, do a little roll up in that space. And from there, we started writing our books. We started um, uh, really uh, uh, thinking about these issues and harmonizing because because the core thing for me has always been like, why do I exist? What am I doing in this world? What's the life well lived? Like these were not like idle background topics. This was like what we talked about every day for hours and hours and hours is trying to find good answers to these questions um, that, that, that we could uh, have faith in while also then then the weird thing happened. And this is where, where everything goes weird for us is, is we write the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion. We're, we're, we've, we've taken up the pronatalist movement really as our personal mantle. Um, and we then end up saying, well, shit, it seems the only way to ensure intergenerational cultural transfer uh, is, is religion. And it seems the only way to ensure, uh, you know, any, any form of, of, of high fertility rate is, is, is well, these religious cultural matrices. 
Um, and so we started to really study, you know, one of the things you mentioned to me is you can't control how your kids turn out. And that's absolutely true. But the idea that you have no control over this, I mean, look, no, Judaism no, no, has suggested true. as a religion for a long time, like right. what, why has right. this religious system been so stable? Right. What other religious systems have been stable? How can we build something for our kids that will have a level of stability and lead to this intergenerational thriving? And then we created this completely artificial structure. Uh, we're just like, this all seems reasonable. Um, and it's they're unlikely to deconvert until they would have like harder draws. Like they, a lot of the tactics that the urban monoculture has been using against traditional religions are going to be much less effective against this system. Um, and we built all that up. And uh, then we started practicing it. And, and it was based on sort of modern iterations of many of the older Calvinist traditions that both of our families come from. Um, and, uh, we were like, wow, we actually really believe a lot of this. Like the longer we practice it. And a lot of people have noticed this, like faith comes downstream of tradition and practice. And so there is a, a reason for these traditions and practices. And so we then started to <laughs> be like, okay, this seems like maybe truer than we thought it was. <laughs> And so with that in mind, we then began to revisit a lot of the religious texts and stuff like that, that we had previously been researching primarily from the perspective of uh, apologetics um, and, and finding them to be sources of, of truth, which could inform us and help build sort of a background lattice for our own children. Talk to me about commitment. How you two have been married 11 years? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool. <laughs> it is cool because I mean, the ideas, the ideas fly around. They're like spirits. I mean, they fly through the air, but the foundation are commitments and, and you two have managed. I mean, you're, you're both clearly very smart. Uh, you're both clearly very conscientious. You're very energetic. You're high energy people. You do a ton. You're very productive. But you're also you also seem to be committed to each other because you made it past seven years, and um, and that's that's a big deal, and it's a big deal for your project because you know it's not the vast majority of the vast majority of people are not like the two of you. <laughs> they're, they're just not. I mean, not, so, no. yeah, we, we wrote a book uh, relationships, which I think goes into this a lot. And I think what has made commitment so easy for us, like it's not even something we think about really, um, is uh we did not go into our relationship for love or happiness or hedonism. I didn't marry her because of how she made me feel. I married her because I was like, damn, she's effective and we're effective working together. So we you, you have just pronounced heresy on the biggest church of America, which is the church of <laughs> idealized <laughs> romance. Yeah. So there so it we, is. We, I mean, we raised our fun together. We wrote our books together. We do our podcast together. Like it would be so, what would I gain from leaving her? What would I gain from in <laughs> any way crossing her? I would have so little left. Uh, I, I know that everything i built he, for myself you know he says all this but he's the most romantic loving amazing husband you could possibly imagine um constantly doing sweet things constantly like blowing my mind with not just how sweet he is to me but how sweet he is to our kids he's the most like definitely like i 
his love language is love um and and like actual like romantic gestures and my love language is like mm, i will i will reconcile your bank account for you you know like, it's funny. I'm, she treats I'm really this not like like this is all i get to give her a few romantic dinners that i cook and she does my damn taxes like she acts like i'm the one getting the unfair side of this deal okay uh uh we have a relationship in which she values things that i bring that i see as as trivial indulgences but that are easy to perform um because i know they make her happy and then i get like actual labor and, and effectiveness and money and outreach and no it is it is, it is, it is the most to me one-sided <laughs> relationship i could ever conceive of well maybe um, i think there there are multiple elements to commitment here that that make a big difference and that i think are core to our relationship and one is clearly that each of us thinks that like we pulled a fast one on the other one and that's always huge when like each partner thinks they're getting more out of the relationship yeah. than the other one yeah. and a lot of that comes from the fact that we have very we're both broken weird very lumpy people but mm. we're not lumpy in exactly the same ways so mm. i can do things that he absolutely you know hates doing and and he can do things that i cannot do i just cannot do um I, so I, together that makes for a lot of value but i think the other thing is that like the thing that brought us together was ultimately we discovered that we shared a commitment to a certain set of values and a certain vision for humanity in the future which he laid out right on the table on our first date hmm. you know it was like this is my vision and i'm like oh my god but that's my vision like i want that too hmm. and so whenever we have like a conflict in in our marriage it's never about like oh like i want this and this doesn't make me happy you're not paying enough attention to me it's always like well, I have this hypothesis about how to best achieve and maximize our values. And you have this hypothesis. And, um, you know, like we we need to reconcile the the difference in evidence we appear to have um, because we have different strategies that we think would be more optimal in, in, in achieving. So it's never like you versus me. It's it's always we seem to be disagreeing on the best tactics, um, which, of course, is never going to endanger the relationship because. The disagreement mm -hmm. is about something, you know, it's, it's, it, that can easily be resolved with experimentation and evidence. Um, and I think that that's just so, so meaningful. Well, and a funny thing is, you know, you talk about YouTube, I think before you started recording, we were talking about like, I love watching like red pill content, like MGTOW content, <laughs> like fun. men who just get screwed over, screwed over, screwed over. And one of the things like, I'm not romantic in a transactional context, really. Like I sort of pretend I am to be funny on the show, uh, but I'm romantic. Cause every day I watch one of those and I'm like, damn, like I, I, she needs to not wake up from this haze <laughs> that she is in and this delusion where she thinks that this is in any way a fair relationship and so i need to go out there and always be puffing smoke and 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 you know whatever it is that she personally cares about um you know not like traditional roses and stuff like that because she would say that that was financially wasteful um but i need to do the things that she values and constantly be interrogating her to make sure mm. that i know what she wants and what she needs to be happier you know like like you know recently we achieved a lot of success this, this year was press, press outreach that she mostly did, by the way. Um, and so I need to be like, when I'm reflecting on this year and how well things have gone, I need to be like, well, shit, I gotta keep her happy. Like, Simone, what what don't you have right now that you would prefer? Um, but I think another thing that's really interesting in, in the way we structure our marriage 
is I think that uh, a lot of people, they look at like the polyamorous movement and stuff like that. These people who go out and have multiple partners and everything. And um, they see it as toxic. And I, and I, and I think that it, it, it does not work for the vast majority of people. I don't think it would work well for us. But I think that the uh, monogamous framework also has a level of toxicity to it that didn't exist historically because um, a lot of monogamous people, they're like, okay, I am only going to be with you because that's what the rules say. I committed mm -hmm. to these rules and that's why I'm doing it. Instead of I'm going to only be with you because you are fulfilling all my needs and you have earned it, uh, which is a very different framework for why, like, uh, we have a video on, like, are we monogamous or whatever, um, where we are monogamous, but not because we have rules against doing anything else, but because we understand the value of each of us to each other and we work really hard to fulfill any potential need the other person could, could have. When I talk about this toxicity, this is the toxicity you see when somebody gets married and they get fat or they have kids and then they get fat and they're like, well, everyone does it. No, not everyone does it. You did it because it was normalized for you and you thought you had locked this person down enough that you no longer needed to put in the effort that you did earlier in your relationship. You know, you, you don't get fat because you had a kid. You get fat because a kid locks down your relationship. Um, but at this point, I mean, realistically, I couldn't leave her. You know, she's pregnant with kid number four. We have a book series under both of our names. We have a podcast under both of our names. And we have a company under both of our names. Like, what the fuck am I supposed to do if I leave her? Sorry, I don't mean you to curse. No escape. But... <laughs> You There's no escape. escape. She has trapped me from all sides. Oh no. I, 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 I'm, I, I tend to believe Simone in this. I tend to believe Simone in this. I think heaven forbid, if something were to happen, Simone, um, that you, Malcolm would, um, even, even if she became, um, not the pragmatic answer, I think you would still care for her. I, that's just my hunch listening. No, to it's, it's true that he's, he's just an inherently, and, you know, I, I also, like, there's definitely a genetic component. Um, like his brother is similar, um, in his commitment to, to his wife. Also like his dad is, is a total romantic in the end too. Like, I think he comes from a line of men who, who deeply love the, the people that they're with. Um, and, uh, I'm glad that both Malcolm and, and, yeah, but and his brother what my brother found... did that my dad didn't is my brother and his wife also run all their companies together. Yeah. Working um, together. Whereas my dad great. tried to separate those two things. And I think that, uh, I, I do believe that there is value in, in women having agency in our society. And I believe in a value in some form of, of, of gender equality, but I think that feminists got it wrong. They tried to do it by atomizing the family. Everyone can do whatever they want instead of that you two are equal because you're working together. And I think that this view of family inequality is actually much more traditional than even the trad wife. The yeah. trad yeah. wife was like a fever dream of 1950s Hollywood. Uh, it was not something that really existed before the 1920s. What existed before that was the corporate family, which was a husband, a wife, and their kids working together. Yeah. Um, uh, often to survive. To survive <laughs> often, yeah. yeah. Um, but there's been different iterations of this. There's different yep. iterations of traditionalism. Uh, you know, one thing I often really promote is I, 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 you could call it a Viking style marriage, which is the wife was in charge of maintaining the farm while the husband went out on high risk, high reward missions. And this is something I've seen a lot of families move towards now where the wife gets a stable income yep. and the husband does entrepreneurial ventures yep. that sometimes get big windfalls or big levels of public success. Um, and there's various ways you can structure these different relationships. But as long as you two are 
totally relying on each other, like a tent where the two logs are leaned into each other. You know what I mean? Uh, that's what creates the stability. If you have the two logs just standing upright, you know, uh, and you drape a sheet over it, yeah, you might be able to keep the sheet stable for some time, but something hits it, something like that, it falls over. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think, I think, I think you're right. And I think you're right. And that's where a lot of the, um, so part of what has happened around me is, you know, the whole group of other little channels who, who are all talking to each other and sort of working together. And, and one of these guys talks about the shadow matriarchy, where if you look at Camille Paglia, she was talking about the fact that men and women in some ways lived in sort of parallel worlds. But it's in the family that those parallels come together and are interlocked because they have then their domains sort of you get a you know you, you you get a rise between the two are really working together well and the truth is that every married marital failure is is partly because they just can't they just can't get on the same page in the same project and of course part of the reason kids cement that is once you have a child between the two of you doesn't matter what happens to the marriage for the rest of your life there's a cement between you that child is your product and um yeah. and it's it's a really heartless person that just says well I don't care you know I'm going to act like a I'm going to act like a fish and not care about my offspring but um <laughs> I always can't imagine what would make me leave my wife. Like what a, what a burden that would put on me to have to find somebody else. Dating was fucking hard. Why do I want to do that again? I think a lot of it comes down to like all these stories of people suddenly getting brain tumors that make them murderous or crazy. You know, I'm sure that there's something that could happen that would make a, like one of us just too dangerous to keep in the family. But. Well, life is hard and, and spread out over enough population. There are a lot of sad stories and a lot of big bad things do happen to people. And again, churches, Churches tend to be, you know, some people go to church because they inherit it and it's so it's part of their tradition. It's just kind of part of their identity and who they are. People who come into churches tend to come in because almost everything else has failed and they are really desperate and they need, they need, they need a rescue. And so mm -hmm. as, as a pastor in a church, you tend to bump into, it's a sample question in terms of the number of sad stories you hear and you see them all the time and some of them some of them can be ameliorated at one level or another some of them can't and it's so that's in, just in terms of my profession where that goes yeah. so um so you two um so when you talk about Your vision for the show, I just did a video on Sam Harris, and Sam mm -hmm. Harris is interesting in that, and you, Malcolm, put it really wonderfully at the beginning of that, Chris Williamson, a negative, what did you call it, a negative, negative utilitarianism, negative utilitarian, I thought, boy, that's exactly right, because suffering is, you know, suffering is evil, unless it's, unless it's purposeful, but the part of the problem is, you don't always know what sacrifices will bear fruit and that's where you know it's high risk high reward it's i mean you, you put out a lot of sacrifices that don't bear fruit and so so talk to me about your because there's there's a degree of telos that's very um wedded to your project but unlike unlike let's say a traditional uh christian perspective that i have a lot of that tell-off is sort of offshore to, you know, afterlife and another world and the second coming and all of these things. Tell tell me about tell me about uh what your blessed future looks like. 
so we have a one of our big holidays that we created coming up. Uh, we're probably going to do it at the end of January. Originally, so we could do it on New Year's, which is Future Day, right? Which is uh, dedicated to to what we are going to become, right? Um, and we look, we have now, when you say vectors. we, because we is the slipperiest word in the English language. I'll tell you, <laughs> I, I kid you not. Who is we? Humanity, the okay. descendants Humanity. of humanity. Okay. Um, so a million years from now, right? You know, so often, you know, I'll see people playing these little ethnic games and stuff like that. It's so funny when I see something like Star Trek and there's still ethnicity and I'm like, what? So well, like they lived in a totalitarian state where like only ethnic marriages were enforced or something. Because if you're talking- you know, If like, you see well, some of these other creatures in Star Trek, would you want to sleep with some of them? <laughs> I mean- <laughs> I think a lot of people are, uh, so, so we look, you know, a million years in the future, what do we become? We're probably going to be very, very different than we are today, but I do want uh I, because we see this 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 duty of intergenerational improvement right so so we would we would see it as a failure if we were recognizable to us today um so a million years from now this great imperium of whatever man becomes and we look with our kids and we stare at the stars and we point to this and this is their manifest destiny we we are starting so small we are so early in this cycle now of creating this great human empire, um, which is is going to achieve things that, if explained to us, would be as incomprehensible, you know, as, as one would read, who we, we often quote in our things, as incomprehensible as like electricity is to the savage living in the woods, right? You We cannot understand yet what we are meant for. Um, and so that's really the way that we look at this is we are trying to intergenerationally improve with the faith that uh, once we get good enough, this will all make sense. Like, like once we improve enough, but with the belief that God, the, the God that we think comes to exist, you know, distantly in the future, but also exists through all time because time is sort of an illusion uh, from our perspective. Um, this 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 God is not totally cruel. It has given us a revelation um, that allows us to attempt to understand him and to worship him with fidelity insofar as we can understand it. And this is where we talk about this concept of the Tesseract God, uh, where we say uh, Tesseract is a four-dimensional four cube, right? Um, and so if you take a cube, uh, a four-dimensional cube, we can't conceive it. Like, you literally cannot hold the idea in your mind. It is impossible, and no human can. We lack the mental capacity to understand these kinds of shapes. But we can see a shadow representation of a four-dimensional cube in three dimensions in the same way as we can see a, a, a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional cube by looking at a shadow of that. So if you look at the shadow of that, three-dimensional cube um a, and, you, and, you, and you were like okay well i'm gonna try to understand it by looking at the averages of it you know i'll take the average of like judaism and christianity and buddhism and all that right um and 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 what you're gonna get is a shape that you think is a sphere you think is a circle because that's the average of everything that's been covered by that shadow and yet it is a less true revelation than any any individual representation of that shadow so we take the perspective that a number, not all religious beliefs, but a number specifically within the Judeo-Christian tradition of religious beliefs are full and complete revelations of God insofar as people could understand that at that point in history. Um, and that generally a person is, if they want to follow God better, 
better off going back to the a conservative iteration of their ancestral traditions. Um, uh, so that's that's like our, our, our larger theological framework that exists with other people. And so from our perspective, when we talk about like Orthodox Jews, I think that they are following a full and complete revelation. When I talk about Tradcast, I think they're following a full and complete revelation. When I talk with, uh, well, at least like the 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 Calvinist branch of the Protestant tradition, I think they're following a full and complete revelation. Um, and so uh, when, when I look at those different revelations, what makes our revelation, like, like the one that we try to follow any different from theirs, is specifically where we look from for 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 sources of truth, which is the idea that um, you know uh, uh, God was not done with the revelation of Jesus, and you say Jesus is King, everything like that. Like we do think that He has a unique place, um, but that He also said within His own teachings that there were prophets to come, that there was more message to come, um, which makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, what a human could understand back then was very limited. Like they were dealing with a theological context that was incredibly simplistic. And when we look at the, I think, um, crazy things that were done in like the early Catholic church, for example, we see how badly I think humans botched that message early on, just so that we understand how far we were from being able to fully understand it at that time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I look at that stuff. And, and it, it just seems, uh, I don't know, to me, reasonable. And also when I think about that revelation in the context of, well, he didn't reveal it to people in the Americas, why wouldn't he do that? He didn't reveal it to people before, then why wouldn't he do that? And then the answer I come to is he did. They just didn't fully understand it. Um, and that's sort of our larger theological framework. So what is your eschatology? So what does your eschatology look like? Uh, by eschatology, do you mean like metaphysical understanding of reality? No, eschatology, I mean, where does this... So... The, the demand, the moral demand is intergenerational improvement. Okay. But improvement always presupposes that there's, you know, you always need to... You're doing an evaluation if you look at improvement. And that's a that's a super difficult thing especially within very short time scales, because we really don't know when one particular, where one particular decision will go. And we always have to kind of evaluate exactly. within a little time scale. So I, I think we don't know, but God does know. I think we don't know what intergenerational improvement means, but God does know. And this is why we have this real obsession with pluralism, which may surprise people. Like, why are they so obsessed with multiple traditions existing? I think that the way God shows what's true and what's untrue and what he intended and what he didn't intended was which groups outcompete other groups over time. Yeah. But yeah. that requires multiple groups existing. Right. Like, I can see that Christ was a true revelation because of how this obscure individual ended up in a huge outsized way impacting history. Right. Um, like the, if there was a God, like if, if some other God, not the Christian God was the correct God, he would not have allowed that to happen. Like he majorly messed up if, yeah. if this is the timeline we're living in. So I don't think that that is accurate. Uh, so, so, but, but for this to exist going into the future, what this means is we need groups to compete against each other, like different ideologies to compete against each other, meld, evolve, move into something closer to the complete and true revelation. Now, in the one video I did, which you probably saw, I had this little thing at the beginning where I had Ross Douthat talking to Tara Isabel Burton, which was a very interesting conversation in and of itself. 
Douthat made the very interesting observation that um, he's got this other book. I don't know if you've read it on decadence, which is a very interesting no. book. And yeah. and mm -hmm. actually, it's not disconnected from what you've been talking about, because there are a lot of people paying attention to population collapse. They're paying attention to uh, the kind a lot of the things that we have valued have sort of come along at the same time as we've had, you know, really exponential population explosion. And so a lot of the anxieties around decadence are the fact that um, without sort of, without humanity sort of continuing to um, even just physically at a very physical, basic, biological level reproduce itself, you're going to lose a lot of the other benefits that have come along, that have come along with it. Um, Douthat made the observation that in the 19th century, there's there's a very interesting um, there's a very interesting book on the Oneida community written by a descendant of the people in it. It's a mm. fascinating book. It's like Oneida, uh, free sex and a well set table, something like that. It's a, it's a great book. Um, and and so in the 19th century, especially in the Americas. You know, church was a primary, um, congregations were sort of a primary vehicle for a lot of this stuff. And it makes perfect sense because mm -hmm. in a congregation, you know, a family's kind of too small, especially once kinship groups are sort of broken down because you've got larger structures. So congregations are sort of voluntary, uh, belief-based assimilation things. And it's very interesting listening to you because there you really do hear some, you know, there's some Islam in there, but there is a lot of Mormon. Um, there's sort of resonance with some Mormon yeah. stuff that's in there. So it and so then what, what was striking to me listening to you know one of your videos that was much more specifically religion, where you laid out a lot of what you just laid out now was in the 19th century, you two probably would have started a church. Yeah. And what's interesting to me, and because you two are very online people and you have a, you very clearly have a, a, a really good sense of the internet because, you know, some of the articles I read about you, there've actually been articles read about you, written about you, which is, which is an accomplishment, frankly. Um, you know, you, you sort of were able to colonize Reddit pretty effectively at one point. Now you're starting on YouTube. It's going to be very interesting to see how this goes on YouTube with the two of you. But part of what I think is the internet is just a, you know, it is on the scale of the printing press in terms of a massive change agent in the world right now. And it's, it's not a, it's not a unique idea to understand the relationship between the Protestant Reformation and the printing press. Yeah. So what does the, what does the rollout of your ideas look like in terms? Of, yes, go. I'm going to jump in before Mel does because I want to add some annotation to this. Good. Um, so in the early 19th century, um, no, actually, I mean, are we wouldn't. And when, when we look at like Malcolm's ancestors, we can kind of see what they did. And I, I do think that that's what we would have done as well at that time. They're not forming a religion or a church. They're forming a breakaway state. And I think we're doing something very similar with what we're doing here. We don't want people to join our religion. We don't think it's proper for most people. We really want people to find their own way. We're kind of like, listen, what we want to do is for ourselves, build sovereignty. We don't want people to impose their 
their religious views on us. We want to protect everyone's cultural sovereignty. Um, but we, you know, we don't believe in coercive um, conversion or monoculture, right. or other people um, putting their religion on us. And the, this uh, this other thing about Malcolm's family too, which is maybe much part of our implicit strategy as well, um, was like, I think someone even wrote about Malcolm, like your ancestors. And they were like, these Collinses just keep having kids. Like they, they really didn't convert people. They just had tons. Well, he said he hoped the Collins bloodline washed over the United States with the cool, clear water of socialism. Now, this wasn't what we call today socialism. They were right. um, anti the monopolies at the at the time period right. and, and fighting against that. But yeah, which we still very much are. Um, we're, we're definitely, you know, for any any breakdown of, of large bureaucracies, be they governments or corporations. We think as, as soon as anything becomes too big, it becomes ossified. And Malcolm goes into this in great depth and I think with great brilliance in The Pragmatist Guide to, to Governance, which is another book he wrote. Um, but I just want to point that out that like, we really aren't trying to convert anyone. We're not trying to convince anyone of our religion, but we are trying to say like, it is extremely important that you not only adhere to a religion or have a strong culture, but that it is a hard religion or hard culture, one that forces you to make sacrifices, one that is a, like makes you a little weird, one that that separates you from mainstream society. Um, and we yes, we are building a culture that we hope our kids will adopt. Um, but our goal is to do that by having a lot of kids and convincing our kids, if we do a good job, that this is worth passing on. And, you know, we, we want to have a, a ton of kids. So that's also kind of a diversified portfolio. I mean, we don't expect all of them to they will be not all be. interested. I'll tell you that. In Sample our culture. five, they're all different. <laughs> but uh, if, uh, you know, if just one of them does um, and they take on our culture, which is a high birth rate culture, um, you know, we think that like sort of the ultimate measure of someone's cultural power or influence or fidelity isn't in how many kids they have and they raise within their religion, but really in how many grandchildren and even more so great grandchildren are being raised in their religion. So, um, you know, someone could have 10 kids and all those kids hate the religion and leave it. Um, and, and that's that's it. You know, they might as well have had no kids, whereas one can have one child. Um, and give that kid such an amazing experience that they go on and they, you know, pass it on like crazy. You know, this is this is really what it's all about. And that's one of the things that I love about Malcolm's message with pronatalism and about inter intergenerational cultural fidelity is that this is not about coercion. This is not about, um, you know, wars or fighting or or, or making people miserable. It, it is about giving amazing ch childhoods to children and mm. giving, you know, sharing through love and family and amazing experiences, something that you really value, which I love. Well, I, I also think something that's really interesting in this idea of, okay, you're setting up something that could be seen as analogous to a church or a church for your family. Like the reason why we have so many relationships, it was this one standard deviation was in the free state of Jones because it basically came out of like a church, what, what people might call like a weird family church or like a, a, a something like that you know one of these these large families intergenerational families that has a church and and that deviates from society pretty strongly um and uh when people look at this and they're like they you know this looks cult-like like, like you, you, i saw in one of your videos you compared it to the uh neophics or whatever I, I don't know the the weird cult sex cult in new york oh yeah um, you're, you're not you you two you two are not cult leaders i mean you're you're you're, you're doing a very different program. It's well, it's very different, but I think one of the key things that differentiates, you know, I, I think a, a, 
a good religion versus a, and this is something that we don't like about some religious traditions. If you're actually, one person in your comments said that we seemed very similar to Scientology. And I think that's just because we had some sci-fi elements, but really structurally, you are accurate. It is much closer to Mormonism. Like theologically, we are actually very, very similar to Mormonism. Yes. However, yes. we have a different belief around the idea of a central authority. Whereas we think any central authority, because normally if you're going to start a cult and your goal is, or a new right. religion and your goal is controlling people, yeah. what you do is you say, you are the funnel through which truth flows, right. through which God flows. And then you use that microphone to control people. Uh, whereas we take a very different approach. We're saying, all we're saying is that it seems like the Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition is correct. And we can study that tradition, like anyone can study that tradition. And, and the way you determine whether someone was gifted accurate prophecy from God is God will write into their message an understanding of the future that they shouldn't have had. Um, you know, that they, they, they will be able to predict things that happen in the future that they shouldn't have been able to predict and their message when followed will lead to a high quality life. Um, and that when you combine those and we're saying, so, so not us, like we are Protestantizing almost the Mormon message, uh, which is to say in the Mormon church, they decide who the prophets are, like the central right. church leadership. Right. And we're saying, no, I don't think they're particularly good at doing that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they they said some stuff that I think really undermines them. Like one of the, the prophets said, well, if, if evolution is true, then Mormonism is false. Like you don't want a prophet making a gamble like that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and so we go much more with a system of completely democratizing it while also focusing on, on this idea of not just intergenerational improvement, but intergenerational competition, where I want my kids to not just be better than me, but to prove to their own kids that they did a better job raising them than I did of raising my kids. Because I think that that's the one thing that can really motivate people is this sort of, it's easy to build spite with people's parents. But if you can turn that spite into intergenerational motivation, one of the things we, we often talk about is how the current psychological industry has become an actual cult where psychologists work to build dependency. They work to mm. create trauma. So a, a normal like malevolent cult tactic is to try to break people away from the traditional support networks, try to break them from their family, try to break them from their culture. And so what they do today is they will say, well, here is how your family and here is how your culture hurt you. They, they created trauma. Um, and only through coming to us can you fix that trauma. So at the same time, they're building dependency. They're breaking you from your family network. That's very Scientology. <laughs> yes. And Scientology did this. Actually, traditional, like if you go to a psychologist in, in 2024, you are doing Scientology. Like this is how Scientologists used to recruit people. If you actually study what Scientologists did and why they did it, not like the crazy stuff, not all the alien stuff. Focus on how they actually recruited people. Yeah. What they were doing is very similar to the modern psychological movement. And it is something that I trained in psychology. We were trained not to do. We were trained about the horrors of hypnosis and how that could implant memories in people. And like the girls who claim that their father 
graped them and we have absolute proof he didn't and the, you know the lawsuits around that because they have, were, were were convinced of this through hypnosis when you go to someone and you give them ownership of your mind like you say i'm going to you to fix my mind they can reprogram it however they want and the iterations of psychology there is no malevolence here the iterations of psychology that use that reprogramming to create dependency economically outcompeted the ones that didn't and now mm. that's mainstream psychology but that is that is uh, uh, really, really damaging to the individual. A great study we mentioned on our show. Like we don't believe all studies, but when they disconfirm, uh, you know the the what the wokes would have you believe. I think they're likely to be right because I don't think there's, there's a huge motivation to put posting. Then it was on trauma, and it looked at trauma in individuals, and it showed that um, uh, uh, the amount of negative effects somebody feels, like all the psychological stuff we know about trauma. That is highly correlated with how much trauma someone purported that they experienced as a child. But then if you actually go to court records, how much somebody, how much trauma somebody purports to have experienced as a child doesn't actually correlate that strongly with how much trauma they actually suffered. Uh, so, so you will have individuals who clearly suffered a lot of trauma, but don't believe they did and they have no effects from it. People yep. who clearly suffered, a, you know, the opposite. And, and what this shows is that when you have ownership of someone's mind, you can incept these ideas into them while also incepting these sorts of ideas that you know the, the urban monoculture it attracts you by saying come to us and you won't experience pain come to us and everything is easy and and it is the trials the the struggles that make our brain strong and that make our, our ourselves like the the amount of satisfaction you feel when you learn to not fear suffering and to see suffering as purifying of the spirit which is something that most of the judeo-christian tree believes uh this idea didn't come out of nowhere it was god trying to tell us look you dumb little I made your brain so that when you suffer and when you pass through that and when you don't fear it, you become psychologically more healthy and you will find it easier to thrive. He laid down for us all of this, but we ignored it because it was hard, you know, and that's what we see in society today. So what do you, now my impression is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. My impression is, for YouTube, the YouTube stuff is not. I mean, you you've you already have businesses. Um, you're not you're not looking to. Your YouTube stuff is a labor of it's a labor of love, and it's a labor of betterment for society. I mean, because some some people on YouTube they're you know they want to be Mr. Beast and you know you can give away a million dollars if you've made ten million dollars, but you're you're not playing that game at all. No, we don't. You, you two you two are very much trying to bless the world. That's my impression. So and we see this as an intergenerational game. You know, Jesus during his own life, you look at any anyone who's really they were nobodies. You know, you 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 if you want to make the world a better place, you shouldn't judge success with what happens within your own lifetime. People look at our channel and they go, You have virtually no followers. Um, most saints, this was true. You know, you look at the saints today, they're really saints. They they, they were nobodies in their lifetime, they were yeah. random crazy people yeah. um and so being a random crazy person who flips over a few tables or something like that and keep in mind, i'm not trying to compare myself to jesus directly that but i'm just pointing out yep is is jesus set an example for all of us of the way we should strive to be and i think part of that example is don't measure your success by the fruits within your own life yep. you're you're this is an intergenerational game we are playing for not the soul of individuals, but for the soul of humanity and our species. Hmm. 
Well, that's that's those are the questions I had on the top of my head. I don't know if you want to. Um, I don't know if you want to ask me anything. I am going to come. No, on no. I want to have a different one where we have you on our podcast. Because what I want to do is I want to bring you on our podcast and I want to introduce our listeners because, you know, one of the episodes that hasn't aired yet that I'm actually excited to have aired was, was the transhumanist Mormons, right? And they actually remind me a lot of you, but they're from a different tradition, hmm. which is different people who are effectively fortifying their traditions against this great mimetic virus hmm. um, because it's gotten harder. Like the system has gotten harder. The games we're playing has gotten harder. I yeah. mentioned this already, but people like, you know, tried cast followers. Why don't you just convert to Catholicism? And it's like, well, your Catholic majority countries in Europe have a average fertility rate of 1.3. Like you guys are, you, you need a better iteration of this, right? Like it's, it's old Catholicism isn't going to get through this. Old Calvinism isn't going to get through this. The, the tools our enemy has uh, we, when people are like, just go back to the old systems, uh, they remind me of in Africa when the colonists first came and, um, and they were having these wars um, and they'd have their Gatling guns and people would run at them with spears and just mow them down. And the next group would be like, well, we have extra strong like mojo in this spear. Like it's been extra blessed this time. It's definitely going to work. And you're like, no, the last five waves were mowed down look at what's happening out there this is a bloodbath we yeah. can win but we have to be cunning and intentional about how we beat these people and what's fortunate for us and we always say if our podcast had a, a theme it would thank god the forces arrayed against us are not as competent as they are malevolent we <laughs> we win this game at the end of the day they're destroying themselves um we just need to to work together to do that. And, and and I think that that's something because we all are on the outs. You know, we cannot make America any particular iteration of Christian again. Um, but what we can do is 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 come together with our allies, which I see as the followers of the Judeo-Christian tree, even Muslims. And I know a lot of people, one of the episodes that we haven't aired yet, uh, you know, I'll talk to some Christians and they'll be like, well, I don't like, you know, Muslim culture, right? And I'm like, well, do you like Trump? And they're like, yeah. And I go, that man is a Farsi. That that man is Persian. His houses, his culture, the way he relates to women, the way he relates to business, the way he relates to society, he is a motherfucking Persian. Um, I do not know how he ended up white. Somebody mixed up when they were delivering souls. But but that is Muslim culture. What you mean is you don't like this one. Uh, popular and particularly toxic iteration of Muslim culture, but it doesn't mean that all Muslim culture is evil and that, 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 that you know, the Judeo-Christian tree is all one branch that has some level of, of commonality throughout it. That's our weird, but yeah, no, we're happy to I'm talk. A, I'm a, I want to interview you. I don't want to interview you on this channel, so I can interview you on our channel. You will, you will definitely interview me on your channel. I look forward yes. to that. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. I, I'm just, I am, I am just, I, I, I don't know. I, I love people. I mean, I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't love people. And you two are very interesting. And I, I enjoy you, both of you. You are so much fun. And I loved hearing your story. Well, that's what I love. I love hearing people's story. And um, I look forward to, to getting well, to know the two I appreciate of you. it. And I think it's an increasingly common story these days. There's a lot of people who grew up with parents of this generation that was bought into all this hippie nonsense. Um, and they're realizing that what their families yeah. abandoned had value. Yeah. Um, yet 
they also are distant enough culturally from all of that that they feel they have to reconstruct it than just slot into one of the totally traditional frameworks. Um, but I think that they will make good allies for these other groups uh, so long as, as, as they aren't totalizing. Well, I'm going to end the recording now, and um, and um, I I very much you know I look forward to being on your channel, and you guys are always welcome here. I'm I'm super interested in what you're doing. It's I I just find it fascinating on many many different levels. So thank you. I know you're both your parents of small children. I know what that is. I appreciate your time because that's of course what children need. And um, so all right, I'm going to end the recording. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. Pleasure.